Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, as in previous years around this time in January, we're kicking off with the first in a series of programmes focusing on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 23rd edition of which has been taking place this past week. The GCC continues to enjoy tremendous interest with thousands of registered attendees, whether that's institutional investors or several hundred Chinese listed and private companies. In the coming weeks on this show, we'll be dipping into the GCC and bringing you insights and highlights from the event. Today, we start with a review of a fascinating keynote in which UBS's Kirsten Parker, a tech banker based in Singapore, spoke to Lulu Chen, Asia Investing in Real Estate team leader at Bloomberg and author of the new book, Influence Empire, the story of Tencent and China's tech ambition. Kirsten began by asking Lulu to provide some context on her new book and to explain, maybe for the benefit of some of the more far-flung individuals in the event's global audience, what Tencent represents within its key geographies. Here's Lulu Chen. So I think the people in the audience are very familiar with Tencent in this part of the world, but just for the purposes of getting audiences outside of the region to understand. If you don't know anything about Tencent, think of it as largely as three parts. Their social media business, which is underpinned by WeChat and also QQ, and they have a billion users combined, equivalent of WhatsApp, Spotify, PayPal, all rolled into one super app knife. And then there's also the gaming business, which is actually what the bread and butter business is, because that's where they generated most of their revenue. The company has been trying to adjust its strategy, so they're becoming less reliant on it. And the new businesses that's coming into play, cloud, and also to a certain extent fintech, are what the company is looking at for the future. Yeah, got it, thank you. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, if we think about, so what we've seen is the last two decades of fantastic growth, but what I'm interested in is understanding how you think Tencent's business model evolves over the next five to 10 years. And, you know, I think one of the key themes within this book is self-disruption. So how do you think Tencent looks to self-disrupt itself over this next decade? Yeah. Even though things are super fluid right now with the regulatory environment, with China-US relations, and even technology itself, we are on the cusp of something great happening. You can see it from the hardware, from the chip side already. I think for Tencent, their strategy so far has not changed, and that was decided almost more than a decade ago, which is that they want to be a connector, a connector between human beings, between humans and information and content and entertainment. And even if the next big thing comes along, I I foresee Tencent, um, Pony Ma has made a point that he wants to continue to do that, whether it be in the metaverse or what other hardware device comes along, they will focus on the, uh, the software stuff. And that's where their strength has been. Yeah, I think, but within that sort of, let's, let's think about it and we'll come to the regulatory environment and just in case people aren't aware, you can submit questions just over here and I can pull them up. Let's think about sort of going forward, you know, how do they, large conglomerates, you know, I think these are the companies that have been sort of in focus, shall we say. How do you think that they're going to be looking to manage their international businesses? Do you think they'll carve them out, look to divest them? How do you think about that? 
So that's a really interesting question because right now, I think divestment is a totally reasonable expectation, and we've already started seeing this trend within Ant Group, for example. Their consumer lending business, which is the most profitable part of their revenue stream, they split that out into a consumer finance unit that they only control 50% of, so it's no longer a subsidiary of the financial, the parent group. I think. There's a lot of expectation or pressure, even from investors, to these big, sprawling internet platforms, and asking them, "How are you hedging your risks from domestic regulatory policy versus building a firewall with the international business and unlocking some of those values?" Chinese companies going overseas, I think that has always been an aspiration. So. Looking at the models for, for example, what they're doing in Southeast Asia, I think is very interesting right now, because they try to, you know, they try to build all these wallets in different regions, and then the wallets at some point said, you know, we've learned from you, our technology is already there. What else can you do for us? So Ant is now experimenting with providing the payments backbone by linking all these wallets in Southeast Asia, and then charging a fee from all the transactions. It wouldn't make sense for any local wallet, and from the Philippines, Gcash, for example, to do the same because the backbone that they built was because China had 150 million visitors outside of the country every year. So there's still stuff that they can do, and if you think of businesses like that, it doesn't really have a lot to do with China. The technology originated domestically, but now if you think of like. What they're trying to make money of, and the customers that they're dealing with, it could potentially be a pure international business. Yeah, you apply that to the financial side. I mean, in the book, you talk a lot about on the gaming side, and that's been a key engine for them. I mean, do you think that there is some angles there where they'd look to sort of think about gaming from a different perspective or carve things out there? For gaming, it's the bread and butter for Tencent. I don't think that they're going to slow down their acquisition footsteps in this space. In fact, Tencent was the second most prolific gaming company in acquisitions, acquisitions of gaming companies the year before. Their international business model right now, there's a few things that they're trying to do. So they. They created Honor of Kings, and that proved to be a huge success. It was actually one of the first titles where they actually did the gaming production themselves, versus just importing big titles and introducing it to the domestic market. So on the mobile front, they're quite confident in doing that with other big titles. That's why you have Pokemon United, and you know,、hmm. creating this mobile game and trying to replicate that that kind of success. They're also another thing that they're doing right now is there's all these、uh, regional games that are quite successful, but only like within, say, Europe, for example, or small pockets of Southeast Asia. Potentially, they could replicate that and make it bigger on a global scale. And investors are asking, why are you not walling off these businesses and 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 doing something to unlock valuation? It's a discussion that I think involves more than just corporate strategy, but there's also regulatory discussions and data. So I think, yeah, interesting. Also, I mean, we we talk about gaming, and my team will be smiling because I'm not a gamer at all. But equally, as you think about, I mean, one of the things that Tencent has been very successful on. So when they changed their strategy, was the minority investments. 
going forward and, you know, with a view of, you know, looking at those who are doing things better than themselves, if I could phrase it that way. How do you think within that regulatory environment and what the changes that we've seen in the last couple of years, how does that investment strategy evolve over the, this coming decade, do you think, both in terms of the ability to do minority stakes but also the focus of those sort of stakes? So you asked about how do they stay innovative and yeah. investment was a huge part of that strategy. They literally sprinkled every startup and potential rival that on the street. And that's how they ended up with more than 800 companies. Some of them became very financially successful. Others became strategic alliances like Didi and Meituan going forward because of the regulatory environment, but also because of the financial cycle we're in right now. I think that strategy is already changing and they're divesting some of these assets already. They have to be more focused on their bread and butter business. They won't slow down in that sector, but I think need to make a very good case to regulators and also their own shareholders in terms of why they are making investments going forward and take a much closer look at the returns. Yeah, interesting. A different change. And then I think um, just to come on to the tech side, so as we talk about innovation and you touched on it before, much has been discussed about the metaverse led by the company that changed its name over in the US to amplify that. How do you think the metaverse looks in China versus sort of the vision that you're, we're seeing coming out from other companies? So when Mark Zuckerberg changed his company's mm. name, it actually created a lot of buzz in China. And there's so much money and company interest in this. The irony is that metaverse, this idea, this whole concept comes from Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash with strong underlying libertarian anarcho-capitalist tones. And for the metaverse to thrive, it's going to be very different from, from when the internet whole web platform was created decades ago because the internet sector largely thrived in China originally because it wasn't that important. And the government was very focused on other sectors like oil, gas, telecommunications. So there was this fertile ground for innovation and disruption and people that I wrote about in this book could be entrepreneurial gladiators and kill each other off. Mm -hmm. Metaverse is high profile, super monitored from day one. If the government sees any merit in this technology at all, I, I think it's gonna be very different from what the metaverse is going to be in the Western world in the US and even issues as apolitical as nearsightedness that can become an issue because thinking of people wearing VR headsets immersed in this reality, virtual reality world 24-7 is not something I think that's high on the government agenda. So yeah, it's an interesting thought, lots of financial money chasing that the fine print of what it's going to look like is going to be, I think, quite different from what people think will be in the West. Sort of shifting it a little bit to the, the bigger picture away from sort of Tencent, we talked about focus in investment. I mean, where are you starting to see that? So actually, let me sort of start from the beginning. So at the beginning, what's fascinating as you go through this story, and look, I looked at this sector for two decades and you look at it from afar, you know, as a global um, sort of tech person, but 
effectively, you know, you saw very early stage, it was challenging. Where are you seeing that early stage money going now and which sectors within China? I think the on the seed level and venture capital level, there's still a lot of activity right now. And the struggle comes in the later stages, growth stage companies, because valuations were so expensive before. So now they really have to justify their worthiness in this down cycle. The safe areas, consensus is climate tech and also anything related to industrial output. Those are the sectors that are aligned with the Chinese government's agenda. And I think they're very transparent in the sense when they say, here's our five-year plan. These are the sectors we want to support and promote. People should be reading those and figuring out where to put their money based on the agenda that's actually public information. It's interesting. So as you go back to that policy document that was outlined just late last year, I mean, you talk about climate tech. I mean, what are some of those sectors that have been very much in focus? I know Tao Wang from UBS has talked a lot about this, but, you know, what are those sort of key themes just in addition to climate tech that you're sort of seeing coming from that? So for industrial output, there's focus on how to enhance productivity by merging it with the web and software technology. I think we've seen the disruption of e-commerce and other web 2.0 kind of services in terms of manufacturing output. There's still a lot to be done, and especially with cloud computing technology right now, still, still pockets of opportunities in the country mm. in every sector. Interesting. So effectively a shift more towards what people are calling hard tech. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Your area of focus. Yeah. My lovely area of focus. Sorry, I'm not talking up my area at all. No agenda whatsoever. What I also wanted to ask you more pertinently was just sort of a shorter term is China 2023. I mean, I think we've seen a huge amount of change in the last couple of weeks. You know, how are you looking at into 2023? You know, I think people are looking at it with a degree of scepticism as to what's sort of going on. So would love you to kind of share your thoughts on that. Yeah, there, there's just so much <laughs> happening in the past few weeks. And um, you piece together all the, the puzzles. You see the changes in the tech sector, so Tencent's gaming approval, the regulation developments with Ant, Jack Ma, seating control, but also getting a nod from regulators to inject capital into their consumer lending affiliate. And then last week, we broke the news about how China's um, planning to relax its stance on three red lines, which is kind of the hallmark of the whole property crackdown. And you kind of see a fuller picture, which is regulatory policy is softening. Just over the weekend, PBOC's party secretary, Guo Shuqing, said that overhaul on platform companies is coming to an end. So overall, I think investor confidence, while still so many people were burnt so bad in the cycle. But I think the, the positive news coming out eases it and ameliorates it to some extent. There's a diverging of opinion right now. If there's people who will not touch China and there's nothing that you can say that will change their opinion. But if you're of the thought group that you still want to invest in China, then I see plenty of investors right now, hedge funds coming in and saying this is the best time to invest. And we've already seen many make a killing over the past few weeks by investing in high yield bonds that people were thought or toxic because of um, the property meltdown. 
but with the policies coming in, actually, the returns are already here. I think for long-term investors, especially pension funds and endowments, there's a lot of caution still. So I think it depends on what type of investor you are and also how you think about China long-term as well. I mean, let's just dive into some of those different policy changes because it's literally felt like a little bit of a 180. So what do you think has been the catalyst to drive many of these different changes? The biggest positive sign that we're seeing right now is actual policies coming out, actual development versus complete impasse early last year. And I think a huge part of it is because people know who their bosses are now. After the party reshuffle, think of it as any large corporation. If you don't know who your boss is going to be next year, and you have all these policies that were set in motion two years ago, which is where the crackdown started in 2020, then there's very little incentive for you to come out and say, you know, the economy is not doing well, our companies are not doing well, let's make a change. But now where you know who's accountable and will be rewarded accordingly, then I think the incentives are in line. The other thing is about Xi Jinping. The, the consolidation of power, I think, is also very important. And I think he's, he's not holding this as a secret that he wants to be remembered in the history books. And in order for him to achieve that kind of goal, you cannot just achieve you know, the common prosperity policy goals. You actually need to create an economy that rivals the US. So the economy is very important on his agenda. Lulu Chen there in conversation with UBS's Kirsten Parker. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. Big thanks to Kirsten, and in particular to Lulu Chen for sharing her insights. Do listen again and find out more at monocle.com. For more from the GCC and to find out how UBS can help you, just head to ubs.com now for further information, insights and inspiration. And do keep an eye and an ear on this show in the weeks ahead where we'll be featuring more great speakers from the conference. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.